And so just really being vulnerable and sharing something that will bring people in because you're telling them something personal about you. Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Nancy Dion. Nancy is a global design ethicist and product philosopher. For more than 15 years, she's been leading as a black woman at Google, IBM, Intel, and Uber, working on human experience product design. Throughout her career, Nancy has gained a reputation for delivering big results in a culturally honest and purposeful way, with hundreds of products deployed in over 80 countries. She consults globally on inclusive development in emerging markets and has spoken at the White House and top universities, institutions, and corporations worldwide. We dive into ways of navigating resilience and authenticity to communicate impact through your personal story. The importance of bringing out the value in everything that you do by speaking your truth and practices you can adapt to improve your storytelling skills, and how you can communicate effectively to make a real impact. Welcome, Nancy, to the show. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I cheer myself up. (laughs) Beautiful. Yeah, you're so welcome. So when I was scouring the internet of design leaders of who I felt would be really impactful for folks to learn from. I was deep in the interwebs of Twitter, of Instagram, of Google, (laughs) of all the things. And I vividly remember it was in, in February, in early February, I came across your website and was like, she needs to speak at this training. We hopped on a call and just we connected in a way where I was like, other people need to continue to learn from you. And I knew that the middle point of this training was going to be perfect, like talking about resilience and authenticity and communication. And you had so much to say just in our initial conversation about that, where I was like, let's do it. Mm, Let's do (laughs) it. Let's dive in. Amazing. So as I mentioned, so we're in week four of the Design to Be training, and we just spoke about resilience, and we're about to dive into authenticity and communication. And I'd love to learn from your perspective, kind of giving like a base level for folks, what resilience means to you as a designer. So that's a really interesting question. You know, the best way for me to describe resilience in this setting is being able to Bring your voice forward, even when there's an environment that's not necessarily conducive to the value that you might want to bring. Mm. So that means that if you're in a setting where they want to launch quickly and that's the culture, you bring your voice forward kind of in an uncomfortable setting to say, I think that we might want to have to slow this down. That to me is is resilience to, to be able to find your voice or speak your truth despite being uncomfortable. 
it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, you know, I, I had a, a talk recently that I did where a gentleman mentioned he was on a different talk and he had heard me speak for a little bit. And he said, you're talking about being uncomfortable, but Nancy, I cannot imagine you uncomfortable. So I think that that's just BS. You're never uncomfortable. You're just so happy and excited. And I'm like, I know you meant that as a compliment, but I need you to believe me when I say that I'm uncomfortable all the time, right? I'm a Black woman in tech in a space where I'm constantly trying to stop harm of technologies impacting other people. And folks don't necessarily like to hear the word ethics in a setting where that might derail them from launching something. And so in order for me to operate, I have to speak up. And that doesn't mean I'm not confident. And that doesn't also mean that I'm not aware of the value I bring. You can be uncomfortable and be confident and be aware of your value. And it doesn't mean that you are going to just somehow this discomfort is going to go away. I operate in discomfort anyway. And it's a really powerful thing I've seen to just kind of like sit in it and speak through it and see what remarkable things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for, and uh, I'll make an assumption. So <laughs> that, that took a lot of practice and being when you're first in this like uncomfy space, it's scary. It's really scary. And at least for me, for a long time, my automatic response was to retreat in some capacity. I do agree with whoever said that. You definitely do give off an energy of just pure confidence, which is incredible. And so I'm curious how you were able to like marinate in that. We've spoke a lot recently about, especially yesterday, about like imposter syndrome and our inner critic. And what are ways that you how you have been able to show up in this confident manner, especially when say folks just like they don't want to hear it? <laughs> well, you know, for one, I love to let people know that I am Haitian, uh, Haitian American. We come from a different culture. We do things very differently. And so I find myself saying weird things a lot of times in spaces. A friend recently had to correct me because I'm really bad at like American phrases, like give a man a fish and he'll learn something. I'm just so terrible. I don't know what it is, but I try anyway. And it always sounds like something ridiculous. And I think that my naiveness has gotten me very, very far in my my career and in my life. And so I've kind of embraced the fact that there's so many things I don't know. I know most people would be afraid if I don't know, I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to do something about it. But I have found that because I didn't know, and I do kind of have a little bit of this kind of energy of like, insatiable curiosity. I'll Mm -hmm. ask questions that might seem a little weird in settings. And then I'll have some folks look at me a little funny, but still attempt to answer things. And I think I, I think that's where it started. I think I started seeing that in order for me to get answers, even if everybody knew, like a lot of folks assume, for example, that I'm private school educated. I am not private school educated. I'm from the inner cities of Boston that went to school and I went to school in Haiti. And so I'm constantly surrounded by these kids who did go to private school. And so I'll ask questions that maybe they might already know the answers to. I don't know. I think I just got into a point where it's more important to me to ask the question. And I've learned that there's no such thing as a stupid question. I remember learning that in like, first grade, that I'm willing to put myself out there and assuming that there might be somebody else in the space that might not know that answer anyway. So I've kind of made myself a bit of a martyr. And I will say this much. I'm a bit of a martyr by default. 
as being the only black woman in these spaces constantly, it's just going to stand out differently anyway. So I'm going to be seen in these spaces. So I'll give you a great example. I was a human factors engineer intern at Intel at one point. And my manager told me that she would like it if I, when I come into a meeting, you know, feel free to ask questions. You know, they tell all interns that, you know, this is a safe space for you. Ask whatever you want. And if you, you feel like you can contribute, dive in. So I took that very literal. <laughs> and so here I am in my first meeting, my first internship, and I picked up a whiteboard eraser and I started writing on the board with folks. I didn't know that wasn't an environment to do that. Right. So here I am thinking I'm part of the team. I got an engineer title. I'm official. I made it. So I would not be here if this was practice. This is real life, Nancy. This is do or die. So here I am writing on the whiteboard, asking questions. Real. I mean, these people have been working on this project for like months and months and months. And here I am just coming in saying, wait, did you really think about all of this? At the end of the meeting, my manager took me aside and said, uh, for now on, you won't be speaking in meetings anymore. And I was blown by that. And she said, when I said as questions, I didn't mean for you to go in there and take over the meeting. And that was really embarrassing for me to see you go in there and just make a mockery of me. You're an intern. And she actually used the word subordinate with me, right? I was kind of blown by this. She then suggested a bunch of books for me to learn about maybe my cultural misunderstandings of this space. And I was highly offended. I was really hurt. And I felt like she should have been supportive of me. And so here I'm in a space that's not conducive of this like insatiable curiosity and the fact that I believe I belong here. I believe I should be doing this work. So what do you do? Right. And in that particular case, this is what I mean by resilience. I didn't mm -hmm. let her words break me or tell me that I can't speak up in this space anymore. If anything, I let it really challenge me. I asked myself the question, did I in fact do something wrong here? Or is she really uncomfortable with the fact that I presented something different? Right. Mm. And so uncomfortably, very uncomfortably, I decided to kind of stand in my value. I said, you know, I didn't come here to bring coffee. I didn't come here to be cute or be that woman that's like, oh, you know what? We want to take it easy on you while you give the Asian guy harder work. That's not why I'm here. I came here because I belong here. Intel is a competitive company. You wouldn't have asked me here if you didn't believe that I was capable of doing the work. So I feel like there's an opportunity here for us to maybe give me some guidance, but there's no way I'm not going to speak up. That's just not going to happen. And so that's kind of been like my career. It's always been like, let me do something a little different. Let me try anyway. Let me see if I can speak up on things that I really do believe matter. I didn't feel like what she was saying to me was helpful. I didn't think it was like, I thought it was hurtful, mm -hmm. you know? And I felt like that was an opportunity for me to say, one, that's not a way to communicate with me. You're, you're creating fear. And two, I believe I'm valuable here. And despite the fact that this is a really uncomfortable conversation to have with my boss who can fire me tomorrow, I believe I belong here. And so I'm going to act like I belong here. So hopefully that makes sense. Completely, completely. And that very much like leads into like the next question of what I was going to ask, but it may be peeling back and viewing this in a different way from our interactions. And I feel like from the way that you express yourself, what happened after Nancy stood up for herself? Maybe we'll get oh, back to that. I'll tell you, it wasn't great. <laughs> let, 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 but it let, got better. <laughs> yeah, let, let, we'll circle back on that in a hot second. But thanks for asking, Jenna. I'm curious if there was a specific moment. So from, a, from meeting you and from interacting with you, from and even from the story you just told, I feel like you are a prime example of authenticity. 
there is this innate like nature that I feel like you have about yourself where, hi, I am me. And I know that I deserve to be in this space because I worked my ass off to be here and I deserve to be in this space. So maybe we, we can answer, we can ask, answer Jenna's question real quick. But then I'm also curious, like at what moment did you realize maybe in your life or in your career that you realized the importance of showing up completely as you or the importance of authenticity? I think it started when I was trying to fit in all my life. I wanted to try to be as American as possible. But remember, I was I was, I was going between worlds. I was going to Haiti. I was going to America. I've traveled around the world. So you, you might have mentioned that I've been to over 70 countries. But before that, I was operating in two cultural spaces that both operated as if those were 100% their truths, right? Those were their norms. And I was trying to fit in into both places while being a little different. So here I am, for example, my parents are farmers off the coast of a beach in Haiti, right? They're very 1920s style, which means like we still have courting systems. They believe young ladies should behave a certain way. And then you go to America, here I am in Boston, and they're like, feminist rock, you know? So I'm running to America, I mean, to Haiti and saying, women, stop feeding your husbands. We need to stand up and lead. And they're like, Nancy, we don't have any jobs to do. We actually like doing this. How are the kids going to eat? Do you really trust them? Like they're trying to explain to me, like you're coming here with some crazy ideals. And then, you know, going back to America and saying, hey, folks, you know, my grandmother is telling me that all of you have all this greenery to show off who has the nicest lawn, but why don't we grow vegetables in the inner city? Now, mind you, this is when green was not cool. Okay. So here I am in Boston, inner city with probably pollution in the air telling folks you should be growing your food in your front yard and holding animals in the back. And folks are like, you're crazy, <laughs> right? What is wrong with you? And so I, I think I got to a point where I think I had a breakdown when I was trying to do math in school because the French model of math looks a little different than the Americans. It's just a different style. And I remember my, my teacher failing me because she did not understand the work that I was doing. She was just so sure that if I didn't do it the American way, even if I got the answer right every single time, it was incorrect. And I think that's where my, in, my identity started to form that maybe you don't know everything that you're saying. And maybe there's a space here for me to introduce you to something that you don't know. And so how can I empathetically share with people? I don't necessarily think you're correct here, <laughs> you know? And I think there's an opportunity to learn something different and still get my way. That's, that's kind of the thing I've, I've been trying to figure out really all my life. How do I get people to hear me and really hear me because I think I've got something valuable to share, but not like disrupt the culture that they're not aware they were designed into. And so mm -hmm. I started practicing different things. I started doing little different kinds of nudges with folks. And I literally turned people into my human factors engineering experience. They became my UX project, <laughs> right? And so I think I finally got to a point when I got to, I'll say there was a point in grad school when I was working on my PhD. And then there was also a point in my career, both points like legitimized that I think I finally cracked some of the code of this. Mm -hmm. And when it was in school, I had you know mentioned in human factors, like I really want to work on humanities. I really think that if we understand culture in design, that is going to be a huge differentiator. And I remember my professor saying to me, Nancy, there is no advisor that's going to help you with that. That is, if you're not working on something that can prove to be profitable, then no one is going to care about your little humanities projects, right? And so I thought about it. And the first thing I said to him is like, who told you it wasn't profitable? What made you think it wasn't? 
And that's became the crack. Like I started learning, okay, people need to hear things kind of from their lens, right? It needs to be something that benefits them in some way, but I can still tell them what I'm sharing is valuable and can still give them what they want. And so the same thing in my career, Mm -hmm. as I started hearing people say like, oh my God, Nancy, that was a failure. I started thinking about, okay, what opportunity can I give them in this failure? Was it a failure or is there an opportunity for us to create guidelines around this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I started turning around things that didn't sound great to folks and turning it back on them and saying, actually, this is exactly what you want. And And that's where my authenticity kind of just flourished. It was like, listen, you actually like me. You actually like the ideas I'm having. You don't know that you like it because you just have never seen this perspective before. But let me show you why my idea gets you to what you're looking for. And once mm-hmm. I start communicating in that way, I mean, at least what I've learned when I start communicating in that way, I've been able to continue to maintain being authentic to myself as long as I am delivering something that other folks need, but showcasing as well that I am valuable. I hope that makes sense. I, I already knew that I knew something that maybe other folks didn't know. And I always believed that culture could be a boundary for some people. I always knew that there was bias in society, just kind of living in both my worlds. So I had to learn how to operate in spaces that were different than mine, but also explain to them that what they were looking for is me. This is, this is what you want, <laughs> you know? Completely, completely. And I feel like what you're also... What I'm picking up of what you're also saying is, which ties into the like emotional intelligence, is you have a very high level of social awareness. So being able to pick up on others' innate behaviors, their innate wants and needs to understand, okay, so, but maybe you actually do want this. And then being able to express yourself in a true way and then communicate that in a true way that then thus sits with them in a way that they can then take a set, a sit back and say, okay, yeah, she's right. Okay. <laughs> which is so important for designers, which is so, so, so important. For one, I don't believe there's something wrong with me. I, you know, like I, that's, that's the, the <laughs> message people are giving to you. And I think that's our self-talk that's kind of happening. Like, oh my God, I'm so dumb. Why would I do something like that? But I don't actually believe there's something wrong with me. I think I'm different and I think it's okay to be different. And I think that I have understood that what's different to some, maybe it may not fit into your world, but it might be a complete norm someplace else. I remember living in Spain, for example, where this family, I love Europe because they don't see me as like a black woman, really. Like many, many don't see me as they see me as this kooky American, you Americans in your ways, right? And so I'm like, I'm American too. This is great, right? And then they'll say something like, you play with your food too much. I was in Spain in this case and uh, with a family. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, I play with my food. I don't play with my food. And it's like this thing called rabbits. You people have them as pets. And I'm like, that is correct. Some of us have them as pets and they can also be food. <laughs> right. But I, what I, I think I think is a common denominator with a lot of people that I've noticed is that there appears to be this kind of search for significance. Right. I think people innately want to feel valuable. And I think when I present myself in a valuable way, it actually makes other folks actually start to be more themselves around me. At least that's kind of been my gift. My charm has gotten gotten me very, very far, right? And so here I am understanding from this other perspective that this person, they're, they're telling me I'm wrong, but, but I think what they really need to understand is that I can bring out more of their significance. I can make them great. I think, you know, and so 100%. how can I tap into that insecurity a little bit of like, 
You want to matter. You don't want to be wrong. You don't want me to mess this up for you, right? How can I make this an opportunity where you actually shine and look good? So to the, the response of Jenna's question, like what happened, right? My manager did not like that. She didn't like that one bit. <laughs> Other people may like that, but she did not like that at all. It caused her to feel like she had made a wrong decision about me, I think. At least that's the, the, the feeling I had. And that I was going to ruin her life <laughs> as far as like, here's this independent thinker who thinks she's going to come in here and what? Make me look like a fool? I, I mean, again, I wasn't as far as I am now with the knowledge of this kind of significance kind of awareness. And so she decided to make me do some projects that would keep me at bay. (laughs) She said, you know what, we're just going to put you over there and this is your work. And I'm like, but I can do so many other things, Nancy, you will only do this thing. And so I'll tell you what ended up happening. I realized that I may have messed up in my communication. Maybe I could have communicated it better, but I also felt like you weren't going to devalue me from an opportunity for me to be great. And that's the truth. I really felt like you're not, I didn't come all the way to Intel, right. To work on some small issue. I came here to learn. I came here to grow. I came here to challenge folks. And so I decided, all right, I need to find mentors here. My manager doesn't really like me. So let me see if I can find someone who can help me with some things. I started reaching out, asking other people questions. And I mean, when I tell you interview, I interviewed everyone on that team. I interviewed people outside of the team. I just wanted to understand what the dynamics of the culture were, what was important, what was difficult and where I could fit in. And once I started understanding where I had some cultural clashes, then I went and said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what she wants. I'm going to do her little project that she wants me to do, but I'm also going to do a project that I feel is valuable for me. And I asked one of the mentors if they would mind teaming up with me to design something that I felt was worth the value that I would present. And then when we had planned a meeting to present at an intern presentation, I started off by saying, hey, everyone, I know you came here today to hear me talk about how I interviewed a few people and what I learned from it. But I also wanted to share, if you would mind, for five minutes, how I redesigned the system to save this company about $5 million a year through their QA processes. But I'm happy to share the interview processes. (laughs) You know, of course, when you say something like that, folks are like, take your time, speak the money. Tell us all about the money, right? And so I went ahead and I presented, I already had it prepared as well. I would not necessarily advise this folks, by the way, this is just kind of my early beginnings, you know, where I was learning how to present my value. I presented this presentation. I knew it was going to be great. At least as far as I was concerned, I had my mentors helping me. I knew it was buzzwords that people would care about. And at the end of my presentation, I said, and this was technically true, I would not have been able to conduct this project without the motivation and influence from my manager. And I gave her full credit. I know. I see you, Alex. Right. 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 I gave her full credit for inspiring me because she did inspire me, despite the fact that she didn't like me very much, despite the fact that she really felt like I should be in this corner. I was going to embarrass her. I decided to flip it around and turn into an opportunity to show her that she was significant, that she did make impact. And I tell you, to this day, I don't think she really likes me all that much. But I promise you, at the end of that, everybody looked at her in the room like you did this you're the boss, you're the truth. And so here we have a space where both of us ended up showcasing value just because I was confident enough to say, this is really crazy, Nancy, super Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but I trust the people who I spoke to who have shared with me what's important here will 
not fail me now. <laughs> so I'm going to go out there, put myself out there, despite how extremely uncomfortable this is, despite the fact that I may lose my first like real big enterprise job, right? All because I really, really believe that I can actually provide value that's beyond the limitations and bias of someone's mind. So I hope that answers your question, Jenna. <laughs> We are going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from Design to Be. Design to Be is excited to offer our fall cohort of the Design to Be training, an eight week remote design EQ training program. We are bringing together designers who seek to become more effective in their role and ultimately craft a career that is filled with meaning and purpose. We are fusing authentic community inspirational speakers, and actionable techniques to uplevel your design career. Head to designtobe.com forward slash training to learn more and apply. Applications are now open and close September 14th, but students will be accepted on a rolling basis. So be sure to apply early to secure your spot. Now back to the show. I love, love, love your answer. And also to slightly switch switch gears a, t- a tiny bit, but to dive deeper in on really all of what we've been talking about. So we've touched on resilience. We've touched on authenticity. And what I do feel like you are a master of in so many ways is communication. I feel like your ability to tell a story, I'm shook. Your ability to just go and inspire people, that, but then like bring us back down is something that I do feel. I I get inspired each time we talk and it's amazing. So I'm curious for designers who are eager to, from my perspective, <laughs> for designers who, from my perspective, you're an impeccable storyteller. So for designers who are eager to improve their storytelling skills, what are things that folks could work on or really hone in on to really ensure that they really hit the mark when they tell a story? So I hope this is not unusual to say, but improv. I mean, I'm serious. I took took an improv class too. It changed my life. Every Um. designer should take an improv class. Plus one. Turning those yes hands or, I mean, an improv, by the way, is like, it's, you can find this stuff totally free going through meetups and stuff and like being in these settings where they just throw things at you. Now, mind you, I've never taken an improv class, but I'm pretty sure I would kill it. (laughs) I think I would be great at it. And it was something that I noticed in my work because designers come from all walks of life. I noticed some of the best storytellers were like comedians. (laughs) Right. And so here I am talking to designers who are comedians and they just have such an interesting way of really bringing a person in and like just, I don't know, in a funny way, sharing something that may not even be like great news. Like, oh, no. Well, taxes. (laughs) you know. So I, I think improv is one tip. If you if you're able to do that, definitely try that. Another thing is put yourself in really random, uncomfortable positions. So for example, I love doing random interviewing for spaces that are maybe a little surprised that I would even interview. So for example, I'll interview at McDonald's. I will actually go and interview at McDonald's and they'll say, you have multiple degrees. Your resume is quite immaculate. What makes you think you're a good fit at McDonald's? 
Well, that's a great question. Let me tell you why I feel that with my skill sets, I can make sure that I can churn more burgers. Like literally put yourself in spaces where somebody will literally throw at you really weird questions that may not even fit and just kind of practice talking and sharing something around that space, right? And then the last Mm -hmm. advice I would give is that everybody has stories. When I hired internationally, one of the things I looked for, because it might be difficult to find UX folks in other countries, is I look for folks who know how to tell stories. Those tend to be like videographers, folks who are journalists. They tend to be really, really good at telling the stories of other people. Some of you have heard my story, right? You can practice going off and telling folks that, you know? So here's an opportunity for you to take a story you actually know and try to take a lesson that you might be trying to give at work and pair it with that story. So it might be like back when I was in Kansas city (laughs) and mind you, you're about to give some crazy deliverable about why the project should stop launching. Take something that has bring your grandmother into it. My grandmother used to tell me that sugar is sweet, but salt is salty and you might lose them for a little bit. But the point is you got some folks attention by going into this space where you're like, taking something personal, telling a story and drawing it back to what you're trying to deliver. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's a story in each one of us. I think we're all good storytellers. I know that I'm a little pretty good at it. I also am. In fact, I I actually do storytelling. So, you know, like, what is it? NPRs. What is it called that NPR does the storytelling platform? Mm -hmm. I'm slipping on it, but I know some of you may know it, but I actually go to story slams. And like to just get up and tell stories about like my adventures. So I'll say maybe a story about Belize or a story about a talk that I gave or a story about this moment that we're experiencing right now and telling folks about how I felt. Right. And so just really being vulnerable and sharing something that will bring people in because you're telling them something personal about you and then tying it to whatever you're trying to get to them is a really like I found remarkable way to to get things done, and to also share the outputs that I'd like to see. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. So we're going to shift to a couple like wrap-up questions on my end. But for any folks that have questions, start to populate it into the chat, and we'll shift gears in a, in a few moments. Everything that we've spoken of today, from resilience, authenticity, to communication and storytelling, all ties up into this higher umbrella of emotional intelligence or EQ. And so I'm curious from your perspective, why it's important for designers to invest in their EQ. Well, for one, I think it's really important to your mental health, for real, for real. When I worked at Google, I remember my manager told me that he felt like certain words I was using, like diversity at the time, was actually impacting my career in a negative way. So, I mean, I also, just by being authentic, I get really really authentic like responses that can be like, whoa, did you really say that? I remember thinking to myself, like I could try to fit in a little more. Right. So let me see what would happen if I was like more bro-y. So, you know, I picked up a little ping pong, you know, which actually was surprisingly fun. I was like, oh, okay. I get it. Right. I, I tried to drink more beer. I'm not a beer drinker, you know, but I'm like, well, maybe drinking cocktails at work is not a good luck. <laughs> you know, let me just try. I was physically getting sick. I just felt like I didn't belong. And I, I remember thinking to myself, like, I wasn't okay. People didn't find me okay. And I'm not doing a very good job at trying to be a bro, <laughs> you know? And so one day a, I was speaking to a manager and I had told them about what my manager had said to me about, you know, the fact that I'm using language, but might be, not be helpful. And she was like, 
that dude told you that? And I'm like, I know, right? A gay dude. And she's like, he's Native American. And I'm like, no way. The Native American told me that I shouldn't be using words like diversity. <laughs> and she's like, he's my cousin. This is a black woman telling me this. And I all the you know, all of a sudden thought this was a white man. I get into a conversation with him and ask him, like, what the hell? How does a, a person who grew up on a reservation tell me that there's a problem with me speaking the word diversity? Right. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you be one telling the black chick on the team that you're Native American? So we have some level of like, I'm not here by myself. And also, why would you like try to diminish who I am in that way? and not highlight me as a manager. And he spoke some real truth to me. One, he told me that he was purposely passing because he found that it was not helpful for him to tell folks that he was Native American, that people would actually say to him that, you know, I mean, in his in his lifetime, I guess, that they felt like he was given opportunities because he was Native American. And I'm like, well, you know, I can't, I can't cover this up. Like it's, None I can do, you know, you can do that. And he said, and then I get to hear conversations in the background that you don't get to hear. I get to hear people stack rank people and say, well, Nancy should be in HR because she cares so much more about that humanity stuff. Here we go again, right? Because I care about people. Maybe I shouldn't be in design. Maybe I shouldn't be in research. And so I got to speaking with him and we had a really beautiful conversation about, is there a way for me not to be a bro, still to talk about diversity and what's important to me and still be authentic? And we actually did a case study on it. We decided to see what would happen if I changed some of my words. And so this is where I started talking about instead of diversity in design, I started talking about inclusiveness in design. And then I also started talking about humanizing design. And what was interesting about that is I started to check the audiences that showed up. I, for one, all my messages were still the same. I was still being my authentic self. I just changed some of the words, right? When I said inclusive design or diversity, excuse me, diversity design, the people that showed up in the room were, they, they looked like me, black and brown people. When I talked about inclusive design, I started seeing like Asian folks flow in the room and a lot of allies show up. When I started talking about humanizing design, I saw a bunch of white men show up in the room, right? Mm-hmm. And so what was interesting is here I now found a way to get an audience to me by kind of understanding how to change maybe some of my language, but I didn't have to change myself. And so I hope that makes sense, right? That you can still be authentic and just kind of broaden your language so that you can reach other people in a way that will introduce a value to them that they may not have thought of. And I will tell you after that, inclusive design didn't get the the pain that it used to get. Diversity started seeing an opportunity like, oh, I didn't know diversity could have product impact, right? And so in this space, I was able to change minds by creating a space where I could be authentically myself, but also leveraging language that could get people to actually want to hear my authentic self. Mm-hmm. I hope yeah. that makes sense. Co- completely, completely. It's, it's it's showing up as truly you, but then also meeting others where where they're at in a way that they can truly see you, but then also like relate and then understand from their own perspective. And it's what you do as a designer anyway. Here mm-hmm. you are working with engineers, maybe researchers, operators, who knows who you're working with, and they may not see what you're trying to share with them, right? But how do you use language to still deliver to them like, hey, I don't want you to do X, Y, and Z. You don't want to tell them that their baby is ugly, right? <laughs> right? Because you know they put a lot of time into these this work, these engineers, they, they even the designers that you work with. So you have to find a way to really communicate effectively so that people can hear you, right? But mm-hmm. still delivering what you want at the end of the day. Because there's nothing wrong, again, with you. There's always opportunities to learn if that's, uh, and that's a little bit different. But if you want to communicate, I guess that's what I mean. 
authenticity is wonderful, but you can be as authentic as you want to be as long as you also tie in this effective communication. That is really important. So sometimes you have to change some of your wording around, but you can still be you, if that makes sense. Completely. There was a few questions populating into the chat, and I want to make sure that we have enough time to answer at least a couple of these. So first question is from Jenna. So how do you pull out someone's motivations so that you can pull them to your side? For context, I'm a UX writer, and there is a Russian engineer manager who nitpicks on my content, and I'm having trouble figuring out why he's in- invested in certain words and not others. Invested in certain like language that you're using as far as content? Mm-hmm. That's where, so that's interesting. Could you repeat the, the first part of that question? So how do you pull out someone's motivations so that you can pull them to your side? Well, so I, I would start by saying that, I mean, if you want to pull someone's motivations, you probably want to also understand like where certain things are coming from. It's so I have an experience where I had someone I had some difficulty working with as well. And so what I did, one, is I try to disarm them by being vulnerable myself, Right. I'm telling you this stuff works, right? So I tell them something that's a little different about me. So I had a friend, um, excuse me, a coworker, she's now my friend, who I said, hey, I'm noticing that when we do certain things, you tend to want to, instead of like focusing on what we can be done, you tend to harp on things that can't be done, right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to get a better understanding of where that comes from, because in my background, I learned in my own career that it's better done <laughs> than perfect, And so I'm curious to know from your angle why you might see things a little differently. So really putting somebody in a position where, one, you're telling them, like, historically, where I come from, this is kind of how I operate. And maybe you can give me and introduce me a different way of doing things. I'd love to get an understanding of your perspective and how you do things so that I can maybe either set a guideline for myself so in the future we don't come across the same types of issues, or maybe I can have some understanding as to what this relates to, because maybe he's saying this because his manager is harping on him about language and he's just projecting it on you, right? Or maybe, and in many cases, when you're international yourself, maybe you're just like insecure about something saying, well, I, you know, learned the Queen's English. And so some of these Americans and the way they write is just a little different. Or maybe it's just like a UX copy tone thing, right? Like working at Google where it's like, well, that's not googly. Well, can you define that for me so that I have a good set of understanding so in the future I can come to you? And then another thing that you can do is circle back with them or somebody that they trust earlier on. So you might say, hey, who do you think is a good example of someone who delivers this? Maybe I can peer with them and let them see this first and then come to you with this. Would that be helpful? Because then in their mind, they're like, well, I know she checked this. So maybe it's like a really a personal thing I got with you, but mm-hmm. I, she checked somebody I trust. So what's really going on? So, you know, at least that's the way I would approach that. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. So another question from Sammy. So how do you balance out storytelling and communicating about the actual presentation to stakeholders who probably have five minutes to listen to you. I've had this challenge balancing storytelling while giving presentations. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a friend of mine who does this thing that they do to test themselves where they, you might want to do this with a friend where you take a concept and you share it for five minutes or 10 minutes. Let's say you're doing a talk and you share it for, you know, this is my 10 minute talk. And then you do it again and you share that talk in five minutes. And then you do it again and you share that talk in three minutes 
And then you do it again and you share that talk in one minute. And the reason that he and I will do these exercises is because sometimes I can be a bit long winded. Right. And so it, it helps me get to the meat of what I'm trying to say and also helps me like shorten the most important parts of the story. So for one, if you have like a pattern in your team where they're like, all right, we're giving everybody five minutes each to do something, I would say, get a buddy, practice with them and say, all right, let me do, let me give you the 30 minute spiel or the 20 minute spiel, and then try to work on shortening it and shortening it and shortening it. And then you might realize that it's really more about the punchline and you can literally get to a point fairly quickly. It is a practice. I can promise you. There are sometimes like I'm really good when somebody says you only have five minutes left. I'm like elevator pitch. You can practice this stuff ahead of time. And that way, if there's like, after some practice, what will end up happening is you'll learn kind of in your mind how to get to those key points very quickly and still share some aspect of, I assume it's the user story here. So one example is if I have five minutes of time, I know that I'm going to have to share, share a story with lots of metrics, right? So I'll say, well, you know, we tested this on 80% of our users. And what we found in Brazil is that these users seem to think about this more than those users in Mexico. If you'd like to hear more, we can talk type this back next week in a longer talk. But for now, this is the information that we have. And I hope that's helpful in telling you why we made this decision to move forward or not take this decision on or why we suggest you to do this a little differently. So hopefully that's helpful too. I love metrics. Metrics are a really easy way to get somebody to kind of cure you really well without feeling the need to tell a whole story. They want to know more. They're like, what do you mean 80% of the users said this? <laughs> you know, Partner with your researchers on this. They tend to be really good at storytelling if you are designers. But if you are already a researcher, I do suggest kind of practicing telling stories with folks ahead of time and then going into a meeting. And hopefully you can wing it. Beautiful. Thank you. So I want to be mindful of your time, but there is one last question that I, I do want to get to because I feel like it's, it'll be really valuable for folks uh, here, but also for folks listening in the future. So this is from Ava. So as a woman of color and young person in tech, I am often treated as though I don't belong. How do you cultivate self-love in an industry that pressures you not to be yourself? Right. You know, apart from the fact that I am affirmation queen, please follow me on Instagram. You will see. I'm constantly telling myself positive things. I really, really, truly believe that we were put on this earth to create. And so I feel like in just minimum knowing that you were put on this earth to create, you've already like hit your purpose, right? You're out here designing and trying to do things. So everything else is like on top of that, like you've already kind of made it in my mind, right? Because here I am doing my little problem solving through creation type thing. But everything else I, to me is like a topping, you know? So I, I remember, for example, when I, as a young person of color myself, right? When I started working at these tech companies, going into engineering firms, security kept stopping me, quite literally kept stopping me because I just didn't look like I belonged. And so if I didn't have my badge up underneath my neck for them to see, they'd say, I'm sorry, this is an engineering building without recognizing that they were doing bias. And so what I started doing, and you'll start to pick up, is that was the first time I started coloring my hair. I started going and saying, you know what? I wonder what would happen if I was like a different black girl, <laughs> you know? So I would come up and they're like, oh, you're fine. I'm like, oh, you caught me, <laughs> right? I literally started saying, you know, if I'm going to stand out, I'm going to stand the hell out, right? And leverage this as an opportunity 
for me to be seen, to be asked questions, because I know you can see me. <laughs> I know y'all can see me in this room. So if I'm going to stand out anyway, I'm going to make myself stand out in a way that you will see my value. I'll always raise my hand. I'll be the first to answer questions. I'll be the first volunteer at everything, right? And you will come to know me as like, Nancy is a go-getter. She's always present. And when she's not present, something's weird. Something's kind of off in here. And I know that people feel that. I remember when I knew to an extent that I had started churning other people around me for understanding their true authenticity because we got a second Black person on my team. And I remember in the meeting, they had asked a question and her response was, okay. And I was like, (laughs) everybody in the room was like, and she was like, first of all, Nancy, you're not going to play like you don't come in here bringing all of this. And I can't say, okay. I'm like, girl, go on get your best life. This is your world. I love it. You know, and it really started getting other people to start speaking up more about some of their interests. I remember my manager was a little surprised that one of her people came to me and said, I think I actually care more about Ayurvedic medicines than design. And she's like, what am I supposed to do with that, Nancy? Like she's telling you that she wants to do. And I'm like, I think we should embrace it. She's a designer and she's great at it. And we should give her a brown bag to teach us some of this Ayurvedic stuff. I want to know what she's talking about. Right. And so why can't we embrace her fully? Why can't she be multifaceted? Why can't she be multi-talented? Why does everybody have to just showcase this one side of them? And, you know, so I started embracing the beauty in these differences. And so you start to do that when you like practice these affirmations. And I do something called mirror work where every single day I look in a mirror and I say seven things I'm proud of myself for, seven things I forgive myself for, and seven things I commit to myself to do. And that's how I start my days. It's like, it's all about you. <laughs> get, you know, all of you kind of out there. There's nothing wrong with you. And if you feel like there's something wrong with you, you better let it go now. Forgive yourself for having these crazy thoughts. And now let's commit to being the best damn Nancy that there can be out there. And so hopefully we'll have more conversations like this in the future. I plan to share a lot of these tidbits on my own social media because I really think it's been really great for my career to just continue to be myself and also kind of continue to recognize that I'm valuable and share that value. I hope you know that you are valuable. Each one of you is valuable and your uniqueness is needed. You are significant. And I think once you understand that you are significant, the world will open up for you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for your time, your energy, your enthusiasm, your wisdom. And I know I learned a lot and I'm sure that folks listening now and later definitely did as well. So thank you so much. For sure. For sure. For sure. Folks, I really appreciate your time. I hope you find me on LinkedIn. So if you have other questions that you want to ask, you know, just ping me. But hopefully you're inspired. I want to see great things come out of each and every one of you. You guys now have the power of EQ. So go forth (laughs) and be great. Thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you are curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. 
be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.